This morning is part two of a three-part message we uh, started actually about a month ago on gospel character. Uh, you recall in part one, it's on Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25, I mentioned that this passage is just so rich, there's no way we can dive into all of it in one sermon. So the very first sermon uh, became really just providing the structure of these 10 verses. And by way of reminder, I want to just show you what the major talking points of that part one sermon were on the screen behind me, that, that Paul talks about gospel character. He says there's the command to gospel character in verse 16, but then he talks about the battle of gospel character in verses 17 and 18, and the reason is a battle is because there's such a contrast uh, of gospel character verses 19 to 23, but then he provided the key to real gospel character in verses 24 and 20. Now, just giving that structure took up our entire time together a month ago. Um, and I had mentioned that in those 10 verses, we're woven four really important principles that are really uh, critical to understand to really have this passage have traction in our lives. And we couldn't do it in one sermon, so we were going to punt that. Well, here we are now. We're going to look at the first two of those four important principles or ideas, and they have to do with the challenge of desires that we all uh, have and the challenge of our natures. And then next week, we'll look at parts three and four, and that's where Paul contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit, and then focuses in, we're going to focus in on those, that family of verbs are so beautiful, being led by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, living in the Spirit. And so we'll look at those two next week. For the, our passage this morning, we're actually only going, to, only going to look at verses 16 and 17, only those two verses, but really, those two verses serve as a launch pad into this issue that is thematically huge throughout the entire New Testament. Now, to be clear, the key to living gospel character is not different. It is still verses 24 and 25 of, of, this, of, this, chat, of this passage where Paul talks about crucifying the flesh and living to the, in the Spirit. And by the way, I think that was very deliberate on Paul's part. He, he deliberately juxtaposes very ironic statements, right? Think about it. Here's the key to life. Here, so, crucify yourself and live. It's, it's, it doesn't make sense. I think he's deliberately trying to be ironic and juxtaposing those two so that it would grab our attention. What are, you, what are you talking about? Crucify and live. That doesn't make sense. That's part of the paradox of Christianity. Jesus says, you want to find your life? Well, here's how you find it. You just lose it. You want to be the greatest, you want to be first, here's how you be the greatest and first, you be last and serve everyone. What? Those are the paradoxes. It's not because Jesus is into weird sayings like one hand clapping or anything like that. It's just that this world is so messed up, we don't know up from down. So what seems like a paradox is actually the right way it's supposed to be. So, so Paul capitalizes on that and uses this metaphor, but it has a lot of traction. The way to have gospel character, crucify, then live, Right? But in order for it to have all the traction we need it to, we need to kind of wrestle with those four other dynamics that were kind of woven in those 10 verses, but we didn't have time to get to them. Now that we laid out the structure, we can dive into these two other dynamics, at least today and then next week, those remaining two. So that's kind of what we're going to be looking at. We'll be launching from Galatians 5, and I just want to give you a bit of a warning. Uh, unlike a lot of Sundays when we primarily stay to the passage at hand and kind of dip here and there, 
because I want you to see the expansiveness of this doctrine, we're kind of doing like a systematic theology, so we're going to be darting all over Scripture, mostly in the New Testament. Do not feel pressured to write them all furiously down. Just sit back, enjoy. They'll be on the screens, but I put them in the community group questions. So all the verses I referenced today, this morning, are in the community group questions, which I forgot to post. So eventually, as soon as I get home, I will post them. Send me a text if you don't see anything by 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock, but just you don't have to worry about writing all these down. Well, with that, let's dive into Galatians 5 and pick it up again at verse 16 and launch from these two verses. The challenge of our desires, verse 16, Paul writes, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Let's stop there. We need to unpack this phrase that's so predominant, the desires of the flesh. We want to unpack that to make the point a little clearer. It's easy to see if you read this passage that it seems like it implies that the idea behind desires of the flesh is inherently wrong, especially when you have the qualifier flesh there. If you are a Christian, you've been well taught, you know that flesh is in opposition to the Spirit. Uh, I can imagine, however, if you're not a Christian or not kind of familiar with this, you know, flesh, what we mean by that is not our, our physical flesh, but a, a way of living that is opposed to the things of God. So when you hear desires of the flesh, though, especially when the surrounding context has to do with sin and those kinds of things, and you hear flesh, sin, it's understandable why we might go to say, oh, Paul must be talking of maybe sin generally, wickedness, but probably sexual sin, right? When we have sin and the word flesh together, we're thinking some kind of sexual sin, and that's what Paul's talking about. But, but that's not really what he's getting at. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a list down in Galatians 5 and verse 19. Uh, you can call it, there's no real, the, 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 the works of the flesh is what it's called. I'll, well, let's just call it the flesh list or the nasty list. And you have all these kinds of actions and behaviors and lifestyles that are just over the top with wickedness. So when we hear desires of the flesh, we are already going to these just over the top actions of immorality and wicked behavior. But, you know, that's not exactly what the New Testament and what Paul has in mind here when he's talking about the desires of the flesh or really in any other section of the New Testament. For one thing, the list that uh, I, I called the, 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 work, or the, call, the, the works of the flesh here in verse 19 are not the same thing as the desires of the flesh. In other words, the works of the flesh we see in 19 and following are the natural external results of the desires of the flesh, but they're not necessarily the desires themselves. So in other words, I don't want you to confuse the phrase in verse 17, the desires of the flesh, with that list in verse 19, the works of the flesh, to think that they're synonymous. And so therefore, every time you hear desires of the flesh, you think it has to do with sorcery or whatever else is written there, which, which it doesn't necessarily. Okay, I'll make this clear as we continue to move on. That works list in verse 19 is the result of something prior to that, a desire that's fueling that. 
And if you look at that list, it encompasses all kinds of things, doesn't it? Sexual immorality, and that, that adds to thinking that that's all that this talks about. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions and divisions, envy. So this list is pretty broad, and they're pretty extreme. So it's easy to see why when we read Desires of the Flesh, we think it's always referring to these over-the-top wicked actions. That's not the case. I'll continue to make that point in a little bit. Second point, though. Hopefully, most of us in this room, certainly if you call yourself a Christian, you're not deliberately pursuing the items on that list in verse 19 and following, the works of the flesh. In other words, you're not waking up every morning and saying, you know, tonight, today, I'm just going to choose to live in enmity, division, and fits of anger, and throw a little sorcery in there as well. I'm just going to choose to live that way and just crash my life and the life of people I love around me. If you do wake up thinking that, then you really got to see me after the service. But the reality is nobody chooses to live that way, whether you're a Christian or not. Very few people wake up saying, yeah, life's too good. I just, need to, I just need to crash it in a ditch a little bit. We don't choose to do that. Yet so often, that is the net result of our lives. And that's why it's confusing. Well, if I'm not choosing that, why does this so often happen? By and large, our problem isn't at all that obvious. In fact, we all would recognize how problematic these lifestyles are. In fact, we don't want to do any of them but as I said, the conundrum is often that so often our lives are filled with those works, even though we're not choosing those desires. So how do we make sense of this? Here's the point. Here's what I'm trying to do. I am trying to dispel the temptation, particularly if you're a Christian, particularly if you've read these passages before. I'm trying to dispel the temptation to read these phrases, desire of the flesh, and ignore and miss the real point Paul's trying to make simply because you do not partake in such obvious and immoral behaviors as he lists here, right? So you read this and go, oh, sorcery, I don't cast any spells, so clearly this is not for me. Maybe it's for the guy over in the other pew, but not me. The reality is the desires of the flesh are much more common to us than we might first suppose. Paul saying in the fight for gospel character, the essence of what's wrong with us is that isn't so much that we want to do evil things because by and large we don't. So the growth in gospel character isn't a battle between I want to do good and I'm going to fight doing evil. By and large, we don't choose to do evil as a general rule. You see, the word desire here is the Greek word epithumia, and that word is not trying to communicate ordinary desires for something that is evil or wrong. The word epithumia is just trying to communicate inordinate, excessive over-desires for anything, and often they are for things that are good. So let me say that again. The word here for desires of the flesh isn't an ordinary desire for things that are wrong. The word is actually an, an kind of elevated, over-the-top, magnified, inordinate desire, and often for things that are actually good. Paul is saying this is the essence of what's wrong in the fight for gospel character. 
So the phrase, so desires are of the flesh here in Galatians 5, not simply because they are actions that are found in the, the nasty list or the works of the flesh. Paul calls them desires of the flesh because they have no Godward orientation. They are completely bereft of a spiritual kingdom, scriptural perspective. These desires are totally governed and filtered through a self-oriented kingdom, through self-oriented values, through self-oriented priorities and pleasures. And as a result, these desires have become way too important for us not because that the thing that is desired is wrong inherently, but because they are stripped of any Godward reference or orientation. Let me put it to you another way. I'll have it on the screen behind me. Another way of thinking about it is the essence of what goes wrong with us is that we take good things and turn them into ultimate things. Okay, let me say that again. We'll keep it on the screen. The essence of what is wrong with us as a society, as a culture, as a species, Christian or not, we will take good things and make them ultimate things. The Bible has a word for that, idolatry. Idolatry. When we take good things and make them ultimate things. Now, the word idolatry in the Old Testament is characteristic and a summary term that is used to describe the human propensity to drift from God. That's why it's all over the Old Testament. And we often think of it as bowing down to figures or things. And, 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 and the reality is, when you look at the New Testament, that word almost drops off the radar. We don't see that word used hardly at all. And it's not because the human heart no longer drifts from God. It's just that the dynamic has changed. If idolatry is the word that characteristically summarizes the Old Testament teaching about the human propensity to drift from God, the New Testament word is desires. Both idolatry and desire are conceptual shorthand for what is wrong with human beings. This is why, brothers and sisters, my friends, it is so often so difficult to spot idolatry in our own lives. Because more often than not, they are caught up with good things, right? This is why it's so hard to see it, because the idolatry, the desire is focused on what we would say is a good thing. And because in our kind of evangelical world, we often have a, what I call maybe a shallow, superficial sin radar, in that we have been trained to think, okay, I got to watch out for the bad things that I do or other people do. So that's sin. All the while, all the while, the thing we really need to be paying attention to is that these good things sneak in the back and hijack our allegiance to Christ and His kingdom, and we don't even know it, right? So we're looking over here, that's sin, the bad stuff. I've seen the nasty list. I, saw Gal I read Galatians 5, 19. I know what I'm looking for, but all the while, the real problem is the good thing that sneaks in the back quietly and hijacks your allegiance from Christ to something else. And we don't even realize that it's happening. And that's why it's hard to spot idolatry, because we would say, this is a good thing. Doesn't God want me to love my children? Oh, He does but He doesn't want you to worship them. 
He doesn't want you to orient your lives around them. He doesn't want your values, your priorities, the way you use your time and leisure, all dependent on them. You've now worshipped your children and taught them to worship themselves and taught them that I am not more important, they are. Oh, they would it's never phrased that way, but that's functionally what's happening. Now, let me show you some passages that show from James's writing, John's writing, Peter's writing, Paul's writing, how desires, this word is a catch-all phrase to describe this drift from God. Now, languages are not all identical, so the Greek word epithumia is translated numerous ways in English, so you're going to see it reflected as passions, as longings, as lusts, as, as, lo- as well as earnestly. Interesting. Now, I don't know if the earnest translation's in our verses, but you'll, take, you'll see what I'm talking about. So here we have Ephesians 2, 3 on the top and Ephesians 4, 22 on the bottom. Paul writes, among whom we all once lived in the passions, epithumia, of our flesh, carrying out the desires, that's actually a different Greek word, it's talking about just a generic desire of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, 422 on the bottom. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Think what Peter has to say about this. Peter, 1 Peter 2.11 on the top, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the epithumia, the passions, the desires of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 1 Peter 4.2 on the bottom, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer, and, and that flesh, that usage refers to kind of the material world, no longer for human passions, epithumia, before the will of God. It is from 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires, the epithumia of the flesh, and the desires, the epithumia of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's not from the Father, but it's from the world. James 1.14, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own epithumia, his own desires. Our passage as well, Galatians 5.16, the desires of the flesh. According to the Bible, this is how the human heart works. To use a modern phraseology, this is um, how we work psychodynamically. I can use that term. Some of you are familiar with that kind of a term. They come from Greek words, sukos dunamos, the power that fuels the soul psychodynamically. See, the Bible already knew about this about way, way, way long ago and used terms we traffic in all the time, getting at the issue that humans are driven, are fueled, are made, are pushed by something, motivated by something, and the Bible calls it their desires. They make us go. So the question we have to ask is how do we know what those things are? How do we understand these over-desires from just regular desires? How do I know those things that I'm desiring too much, that are inordinate desires in my life? The way we find out is by answering this question. How do you respond when that thing is taken from you or you don't get what you want, right? If it's a, simply a good thing, yes, you'll be upset. It'll be disappointing. It may even be a setback. But if it's an, if it's an ultimate thing, you rage, you'll vent, 
you, you will compromise your Christian convictions. You'll do whatever it takes. You'll engage in gossip, destructive speech. You'll sow seeds of discord all in the name of just trying to make things work. You will do whatever it takes to get the thing you want, or you'll do whatever it takes to keep it from being taken from you. And most often, friends, it's not some grand issue or action that's taken, kind of like maybe you'd, you'd embezzle some funds from your employer because you didn't get the promotion you were promised. It includes that, but it's often much more subtle, which is why it flies right under that radar. So you give someone the silent treatment because you didn't get something that you wanted in some situation. Or you get in the coach's face and intimidate him until he gives your kid the desired or the deserved field time you think your kid deserves. Or you get snarky with your coworker family mentor, classmate, because you feel that they didn't give you the support that you are entitled to get from them, and you fill in the blank. If your achievements were taken from you, if you lost your job, fell out of favor with that in crowd at the office at school, you weren't asked to join the elder board, you didn't make the cut for the choir here at church, whatever it might be, the young man is rejected by a young woman he seeks out for a date. You don't have enough friends liking your posts on Facebook. Whatever it is, you see wrinkles in your skin, you lose muscle tone, the list could go on and on and on. What is it if it were taken from you, you would get mad, angry, or somehow feel that life has cheated you, right? Or, or maybe more extreme, you begin to panic and, and, and you feel that you're going into a tailspin, or maybe, maybe more passive-aggressive. You become this vortex of drama, pulling in all the time, energy, and resources of your friends and family into your self-orbit. What is it that gets taken from you or is threatened causes you to start taking action that way? If you lose something good, of course there's disappointment, there's grief. That, that's appropriate. That, that's part of life. It, it gets difficult. It can be hard. But if it's ultimate, your life begins to fall apart when you don't get it. And you see now how our lives can be so messed up, how relationships can be so fueled with complexity simply because we let good things morph into ultimate things and though we might still confess Jesus as Lord, we are functionally idolaters in our heart. This is the tendency of the human heart, according to Scripture. And God in His kindness gives us His objective word to instruct us on that, but also He gives us a subjective experience to recognize it's happening. Do you know what that experience is? Anger anger. Whenever you start to feel a sense of anger, you know what's really going on from a biblical perspective? One of your idols was just knocked over, and somebody knocked it over. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. No, no, no. The Bible talks about righteous anger. I'm just, just usually righteously angry. I've said that to my wife a couple times, and it just doesn't really happen. Righteous anger usually almost always has to do in the context of God's honor and God's fame and God's name being devalued and you being stirred with such a concern for that that you do something about it in keeping with his character. Okay, if that's, that's it, then no. My anger is rarely righteous anger. Your anger is rarely righteous anger. What's really happening is somebody just knocked one of my idols over. 
Can I be honest with you? Since my kids aren't here and I didn't get permission, I'll use one here. An idol I'm starting to recognize is in my life is I'm the father, I should get respect. And when my son challenges my authority, I realize there is an idol in my heart that says, you need to respect me because, right? Now, should a son respect his father? Yes. And should that manifest in certain ways? Yes. But when I don't get it, I need to go on a biblical perspective on a rescue mission to save my son from not wanting to submit to authority as is God's command, not demand you respect me because, because at that point, that's not righteous anger. My idol got knocked over. And so in God's kindness, He's given us His Word to inform us about it, and a subjective experience, whenever it begins to happen, we realize, an idol's being pushed over. My desires have become epithumia here, right? An over-desire. So you might next ask, well, why does a Christian have such inordinate desires? How do we have disordered desires? I thought that when I became a Christian, all that was taken care of. Well, that leads us to our second issue. We need to address for our passage the challenge of our natures. On the one hand, friends, yes, if you are in Christ, one day all your desires, values, affections, actions, all your motivations will be completely aligned with God's character. Man, that's going to be fantastic. There won't be a shred of selfishness, rebelliousness, hard-heartedness. Everything that comes from you will issue from love. Man, that's amazing. A couple weeks ago, I was having lunch with a good friend of mine, Jason, and we had a, a mutual friend, acquaintance, that had, from my last church, passed away recently. And Jason had the privilege of spending the last week with Jack and talking to Jack, a godly man of decades, to Jack, what are you looking forward to in your reward? What are you looking forward to most when you go to be with the Lord? And Jack didn't miss a heartbeat. He said, oh, that's easy, Jason. I'll be safe. And, and Jason was like, yeah, that's, I get you all the sin and the wickedness in the world. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. He's like, no, 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 J you, Jason, hold on, hold on. You completely are misunderstanding me. Like, what, are you, what are you talking about? He says, Jason, no, I'll be safe. I'm not going to manipulate people. I'm not going to co-opt their agenda and, and try and bring my desires in there. I'm not going to backstab. I'm not going to gossip. I'm not going to be hard-hearted to people who have needs. I, I'm not going to do anything that will hurt someone. I'll be safe. Wow, this guy gets it. He understood the, the destructive power of the desires of the flesh and how it's so interwoven. And if, if, if Jack felt like he still was dangerous, man, I am like, I'm, I'm, I'm way more dangerous than Jack. I'm looking forward because I will be safe. Philippians 1.6 does guarantee that to us. Paul says, being confident of this very thing, the work he has begun in you, he'll complete it to the day, and it's coming for all of us in Christ. That's that aspect of salvation we talked about a few weeks ago. It's called glorification. So that means I'm, in this, I'm as bad as I'll ever get in this life. If, I'm a, if you're a Christian, in this life, you're as bad as you'll ever get in this life. If you're not a Christian, you're as good as you'll ever get in this life. Think about that. I'm as bad as I'll ever be. If I'm not a Christian, though, I'm as good as I'll ever be. Because on that other side, everything will be different. My tendency to sin, all of that will be stripped from me. If you're not a believer, your tendency towards good and moral restraint will be gone as well. 
And as C.S. Lewis says, we will be tempted, we will recognize that you are either an amazing angel of light or a demon to be feared. Think of the Christian worldview, that this is as worst as it will be if you are in Christ, and if not, this is as best as it will ever get. It's frightening. Uh, Throughout church history, there have been about eight different views about gospel character, how we change in the Western church. We've thought about this for a couple thousand years, and there are eight different views on that. We're not going to go through all eight, obviously. One's a Roman Catholic view, and uh, two of them are kind of liberal, mainline Protestant, neo-Orthodox views. One of them is a, a liberation Marxist view, and there's four of them that are broadly evangelical. The reason I bring that up is we live in a world because of doctrinal distinctives and denominations really don't matter anymore, that we've all been influenced by all of them, and we have this kind of hodgepodge collection of how this is supposed to work. Remember when Greg Kokel was here, and he talked about worldviews and a puzzle. We have puzzle pieces from maybe a little bit of liberalism and neo-Orthodox put in there. We have a little Marxist ideology on how we should change. We have a little bit of Roman Catholic and all these things. We here at Christ Community Church hold to basically a Reformed tradition that believes that within human beings, the Bible teaches when they came to Christ, we have two natures, that there are two natures going on within us. If you're familiar with the book of Romans or other New Testament epistles, though things like the old man and the new man, right, those kinds of things. Uh, the flesh or the spirit, small s. That there's this reality where there's this dynamic taking place within the heart of a redeemed sinner, and this nat- one nature is growing more and more, while another nature, the old nature, is dying uh, gradually. As a result of that, this growth in gospel character is marked by three distinct realities. Number one, it's gradual. Number two, it is both a work of, it's a both divine and human work or effort uh, or, or relate, dynamic is really maybe the word I should have put to it. And then third, as a result of those former two, it does require effort, struggle, warfare, and even suffering. This growth in gospel character requires these things. Now, because I want you to see this rooted in Scripture, this is where we're going to be going all over the New Testament and showing you these points. Number one, this transformation of our natures is a gradual work. Look on the screens behind me. 1 Peter 2.2 says this, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Why? That by it you may grow up into salvation. This idea that it's a gradual growth process. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, so we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, this gradual process. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, on the bottom there. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Why? Because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So, all these terms talk about this, this kind of progressive, gradual growth. I love Hebrews 10, 14. Beautifully captures the, the, this idea of it's a complete work that's done, but it's still an ongoing aspect. For by a single offering, speaking of the death of Christ on the cross, Jesus, He has perfected, perfect tense, it's all done. He's perfected for all time those 
who are being sanctified. You see that? The work of Christ has done something that is in the perfect tense. It's done. It's a done deal. And what that done deal is, it's, it's working operatively in those who are ongoing being sanctified. It's a gradual process. Secondly, it's both God and man's work. I, you know, I just realized I'm not that comfortable with that. Uh, secondly, there is a divine and human component is probably a better way to put it, right? There's a divine and human component, Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I mean, Paul is just, there's so much of this dynamic overlap between these two elements that it's hard to separate them out. Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, which is a way of speaking of His death, equip you with everything good. Why? That you might do His will which is working in us that which is pleasing to Him. See, there's just so much of this divine human overlap, this element happening. And then these last two verses show how God does this amazing work on our behalf, but it's appropriated to us by faith. Acts 26, 18, God opens their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and place and a place among those who are sanctified, how? By faith in me. First John 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God, he overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So it is a gradual process that is happening. There is a divine and human component, an element to it. Therefore, our growth in gospel character requires effort, struggle, warfare, and even suffering. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 1 Timothy 4, 10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life. Hebrews 12.1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then finally, Ephesians 6.10-18, much too long, warfare. It's that passage where Paul talks about putting on the armor of God and getting at it. Now, just a quick word here. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought we just heard for months on our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. What's all this effort, struggle, and warfare, and suffering? How do those two go together? All of that effort, struggle, is, is not to earn our salvation. It is an outflow of our lifestyle in a fallen world to keep us remaining in the sphere of God's redemptive work in us. So let me give you a, just a brief illustration. You get to bed, it's midnight, long day at the office, situation you need to deal with your kids, somebody called you with a crisis, you talk with them, you get, you get to bed at midnight, your alarm goes off at 4.30 because you have a business trip. 
And you realize that you don't really need to get up till 5, but you set it at 4.30 so that you could pray, read the Word, something. It goes off and you go, nah, snooze. The effort, the struggle, the warfare. God doesn't love me less because I didn't get up. He's not going to love me more. What's going to happen is if I get up is I'll love the world less. I'll love God more probably. I'm not, we don't do these things to earn His favor and grace. We do these things because we're in a fallen world, in fallen bodies that, apart from Christ, hates the work of the Spirit. And so, we are called to exert the effort and struggle and warfare to make in practice what is already ours in position. And that's what Paul's talking about. So, we've been talking about gospel character And the growth in that, and the key is crucify the flesh, be led by the Spirit, Galatians 5, 24, 25. Now we know a little bit about what that means and how we accomplish the crucifying of the flesh. The flesh within us is often driven by desires for good things that have become ultimate things in our hearts and have hijacked our allegiance to the Creator and pledged us to some object in creation, right? whether it's a relationship, an accomplishment, a feeling, anything in the creation. It could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be relational, it could be financial, it could be sexual. Our desires hijack us from the Creator to the creation. Those desires, though, come from our old nature, which if you're in Christ, is gradually giving way to the new nature as there's a divine and human component, but it requires our effort, our struggle, our warfare, and sometimes even our suffering. Next week, we'll talk about the final two elements, the work of the flesh compared to the fruit of the Spirit, beautiful, and being led by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we just, it's amazing how much there is can be said in 10 verses, and there's even more can be said about the things we've said today. But I pray, Lord, we recognize that the desires of the flesh are much more subtle and therefore much more destructive to our souls than maybe we first realized. Forgive us, Lord, for making good things, ultimate things, and bowing down at the altar of these false saviors and gods that are so around us every day. Help us, because of your word, to see objectively that these desires can control us. Help us to respond to the subjective response in our own hearts when we get angered, recognizing our sin, our idols are being pushed over. Help us to turn from them and turn to you, the one true living God. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.